live from the empire of lies, an oasis of truth, free speech, and open debate in the vast wasteland that is the Biden administration. I'm Lee Strahan, and this is The Backstory. So how you doing today, Rod? I'm doing good, Lee. I can't complain. Uh, thank God. How about yourself? I'm fine. I'm a little cold. It's it's like 45 degrees here in Sioux Falls. Is it that cold where you are? 45 uh, is is cold. You, you got to admit. Yeah, no, that that's Midwest weather. From what I remember, right around early October, late September, it starts getting cold. But no, it's like um, 60s here. It's about to rain. It's cool, but you don't really need a coat or anything. Maybe a light sweater. 60 sounds like a tropical paradise to me. So it's one of the days where the cold is down in my bones. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Not I'll, just I'll, I'll never on my forget. flabby flesh, but the bones. Yeah. yeah, I'll never forget that from Minnesota, Lee. Uh, it's something you can't forget because it's, uh, you know, I guess that's what Siberia is like. You know, I know they talk about Siberian prisons, the prison, so I guess that's what it's like. Well, Sioux Falls is my prep in case I move to Siberia. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. So... We got a great show you put together for us, Rod. In the first hour, we have attorney and best-selling author Reese Everson, and she's got a debate coming up, right? Yeah, it's a uh, Black American debate between the left and the right uh, lead this Saturday in D.C. And I think it's interesting, you know, um, you know, we lack debate, uh, not uh, conflict, but just debate discussion between both sides. So I think it's interesting, and then that's why I brought her on to talk about it. Yeah, that's going to be great. Then in the second hour, we have, and did, were you listening to By Any Means Necessary right before we went on the air, Rod? Yeah, they were talking about the uh, the broken political system here in America. Well, when you say they, you mean Sean Blackman and his guest, Ted Rawl, right? Yeah, frequent guest here on the backstory. And so Ted's the second hour guest today. So we should have just kept... We could have done Ted in this segment, and he would have had a, he would have not gotten a break. But you know, you know, it's a Ted Rawl day at Sputnik. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's fair. Okay, and we're taking your calls 202-521-1320. And I want to know if you're thinking of calling but aren't sure what to say. Usually, that's not a problem for people. What I'm wondering is, what are you doing to prepare for what is pretty sure to be economic collapse and catastrophe? Did you see? Well, let me let's get to the boom first. Why don't you do the honors, Rod? Take us out on the name of the show to the boom. You're listening to the best show on the radio, The Backstory. So my suggestion is if you want to call us at 202-521-1320, tell us what you're doing to prepare for the economic problems that are sure to await us come this winter. Did you see Biden? He's mad at the Saudis for not doing what he wanted and increasing oil production. They, in fact, decreased it. So he's vowing revenge on the Saudis. He's saying he's going to make the relationship even worse. And I've been saying for months 
that the Biden administration took some steps a few months ago to reduce everyone's gas prices. We were nearing five bucks a gallon, right, Rod? And the Biden administration did some stuff and gas prices went down by about a buck or so. Does that, I don't buy gas myself, but does that sound about right, Rod? Yeah, correctly. Um, and I was saying October 1st, I was telling people uh, close to me, I was like, you know, October 1st. So I was a couple of days off. I think I like by the third or the fourth gas price have been going back up and they keep they keep going back up. This is what I, I don't understand about the Biden administration. They a lot of times do things. We, you're right. We were predicting on this very show that the gas prices were going down then back in, you know, August, September, but they were sure to go up again in October and therefore right before the election. So I don't understand because to me, when you wanted the gas prices to go down is right before the election. Does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, no, no, they um, they jumped the gun with that, Lee. And you're right. Politically, it would have been better to do it now. But since it was summertime. You know, people travel, they can't, you know, uh, flights were so messed up and still are messed up. So they, they, they wanted to appease people. But, the, you know, how they appease people is also going to hurt them politically. And I think it's even even worse to lower the gas prices and then have them shoot up right before the election. I think it's an example of how this administration is so inept they can't even do their election right. It's insane. So the gas prices are going up now, but they're sure to go up more. So we have a bunch of clips, but we didn't get to one yesterday. That's a good clip, but we just ran out of time. So let's get that. Here's Ron Paul. Hit it. Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to the Weekly Report. It's time to tell Biden we say no to nuclear war. Last week, the New York Times ran a shocking article claiming that the U.S. intelligence community believes the Ukrainian government to be responsible for the August attack that killed Daria Dugina, the daughter of a prominent Russian philosopher. Surely the established narrative that Ukraine is a model Western democracy standing strong for our shared values against an aggressive Russian invader is damaged with reporting that Kiev conducted an Al-Qaeda-style attack on an innocent civilian inside Russia. The murder of Dugina was a textbook definition of terrorism, which is the use of violence or the threat of violence, especially against civilians in the pursuit of political goals. Just over a month later, the Nord Stream pipelines were blown up, seemingly ending, at least in the near term, the possibility that Germany may find a way to save its economy by mending fences with its main energy supplier. A leading Polish politician thanked the U.S., for doing the job. Then, over the weekend, the bridge connecting mainland Russia to Crimea was bombed, killing at least six civilians and leaving part of the bridge underwater. Traffic was restored hours after the attack, but Russian President Vladimir 
Putin placed the blame on Ukraine's intelligence service. We all know that Ukraine relies on its U.S. masters, so we can assume the U.S. provided the intelligence allowing the targeting of the bridge. There is a pattern here. More and more brazen attacks are being launched against Russia, and Washington is doing little to hide U.S. fingerprints. Why? The Biden administration seems to be moving us closer to nuclear war over Ukraine, and Biden himself seems to know it. Last week he said, Putin is not joking when he talks about potential use of tactical nuclear weapons or biological or chemical weapons. For the first time since the Cuban crisis, we have a direct threat of the use of nuclear weapons if, in fact, things continue down the path they are going. So the question is, if he knows that his proxy war against Russia is moving us closer to the unthinkable nuclear annihilation, why does his administration persist in crossing red line after red line? Normally, foreign policy action should be weighed on a cost-benefit basis. Will the adoption of one particular policy benefit the United States more than the risks involved? In this case, there is absolutely nothing on the positive side of the ledger. Will the security and prosperity of the United States benefit more from regime change in Russia than it would suffer should a nuclear war break out? It doesn't seem all that hard. No. So what's going on here? Why does the U.S. administration with the support of most Republicans in Congress, continue to send tens of billions of dollars in military aid and move us toward nuclear war over a conflict that has nothing at all to do with the United States. The time to end U.S. participation in this war is yesterday. And why is Ron Paul the only person who's out there saying something like that? Does Everything I heard there is simple common sense. And also, the Dugina story, he pointed out the U.S. admits, that, and the New York Times admits, that Ukraine assassinated that young woman. I'd say he's giving an argument. Ron Paul there is giving what I call a standard sort of argument. There's a danger of nuclear war. So we should de-escalate with Russia. I'm going to go one step further. We should not be on the side of a government that assassinates a person in a terrorist bombing for no reason. A person because of their ideas. Do you, do you agree with me, Rod? It's not just that we risk nuclear war, but we risk it for a country that's doing things we are compromising any values that the U.S. stood for by supporting a terrorist regime. And I'm leaving out Nord Stream and leaving out the bridge attack. And I'm leaving out the civilians that they've killed over and over again for eight years in Donbass. The U.S. has no more authority as long as it supports Ukraine. Do you see my point, Rod? 
Yeah, no, that's why I grabbed that clip, Lee. Uh, you know, Ron Paul's, I think, you know, in his 70s or something like that. And I think that stretches along any generation what he's talking about. Even if you have no idea about what's really going on, if you listen to Ron Paul, he lays it out perfectly for you, where you can follow every thread that he's talking about. And, you know, you can get a coherent, you know, coherent image of what's going on. And like you said, Lee, what do we do? You know, we're, we're, we're inside of Nazis, uh, you know, full-fledged Nazis. We're not talking about you know, vice and calling, uh, you know, the guys in Charlottesville Nazis <clears throat> talking about full fledged Nazis and that Jared Copas, uh, talked about in his book that nailed babies to trees. Yes. Nazi killers that did that in the past support that and killed Dari Dugina in Moscow in a terrorist bombing. We should not support those countries. And by the way, let me make a note. There's a journalist named Michael Tracy, and I've liked a lot of Michael's work in the past. But Michael Tracy last night started attacking Fiorella Isabel and Tara Reid and saying that Fiorella should be ashamed for supporting Russian propaganda network RT. And let me say, I'm not going to say what I would like to say to Michael. Michael, go do something yourself that I can't say because of the FCC. That's bogus. I've lost all respect for him. For him to attack Fiorella and Tara without any specific th claim that Fiorella had said anything wrong. And I pointed out to him, RT is a solid source. RT has been reporting the truth about this war. And he stooped to calling them a propaganda network. Why, why do you think he did that, Lee? I, you know, I've, I've, I don't follow Michael Tracy, but I see his stuff over the years. And, you know, he, he's, he's pretty decent at his work. Um, uh, but why do, you think he's, why do you think he's doing that? I personally think someone accused him on Twitter of being a, a Russian asset. You know, that accusation gets leveled against everyone. You, you saw Tulsi's getting it now, right? Tulsi's a Russian asset. Right, and right. So, so what happens is a lot of times people, if uh, if they get accused, they think the way to defend themselves is to say, see, I'm not a Russian asset. I'll accuse Russia of something. See, I'll attack people who work for RT. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, no, that's a coward move to, especially picking on, uh, you picking on a woman. Um, why don't, why don't, you know what I mean? So that's a and, coward. And that's a coward move to. Who, he he didn't say Fiorella. How dare you say that? Because because she's not reporting anything not true. So I don't know. You know how dare you say that Zelensky attacked Kiev with missiles Monday, right? She wasn't saying that. But if she had, then I'd criticize her. And I like Fiorella, but I don't like lies. And to accuse her of being a liar, a propagandist, that's low. So I just want to say that one thing. Now let's get to the calls. 202-521-1320. Tarif, you're online. What's on your mind, buddy? All right. I have a lot on my mind right now dealing with um, Trump and how he can win or lose. Now, hear me out, because I know you're going to jump on me, but it's going to be kind of somewhat controversial. 
If the Republican Party go too far to the right for 2024, they could lose. Now, hear me out, Lee, because I know you, you, you know, your mouth is starting up. But anyway, <clears throat> he have to sit down and talk to Ron Paul, and he got to get the libertarians on his side. He have to talk to that uh, the person that ran in 2020, the libertarian movement, right? That has soaked up a lot of libertarians from the Republican Party, and he got to make a deal with them where he can bring that. Uh, it was a, a woman that was running uh, into his cabinet, bring Ryan Paul into his cabinet. Also, he got to bring some Republican moderates in his cabinet, and so and some Republican liberals in his cabinet as well, along with Chelsea Galbit in his cabinet. Him, in my opinion, Lee. But what's let me stop you for one sec. What's a Republican moderate? Define that and name a person who takes that position in your opinion. Because usually Republican moderate means squish neocon. Tarif, what do you think? Okay. Thank you for um is um putting that out there for me. When I say Republican moderate and Republican liberal, I mean somebody the, uh, in the term of someone that that's against the reset, that's against neoliberalism, that's against neoconism, but that's for infrastructure, that's for uh, like a hair care a hair care system, but in a Republican way, something that want they want to invest back into America, right? But at the same time, being a moderate and being anti reset, being anti globalist, and I think tells. Kelsey and Ryan Paul fits in that, right? Well, they kind of know what's going on. They they anti reset, right? They both anti reset. If he's Trump can put them in because Tulsi can come in as as a, uh, a, a Republican kind of moderate to liberal in a way, but at at the same time being anti reset, anti globalist which would help out his campaign if he put as right VP or maybe on or, or on his staff somewhere, State Department, whatever, and or maybe Ryan Paul. People that's against the reset but have a moderate view of, urban, you know, of society where they can work with the black community, Hispanic community, as a, you know, Muslim community, where you can bring more votes in. Because if they go too far to the right, because I'm hearing everybody, I was for, I was saying, okay, Trump and Brian DeSantos. But I thought. Well, uh, also, defined too far to the right. What what position do you think is too far to the right? Um, Being too too far to the right, well, I'm not saying neocon, but I'm saying too far to the right. Well, you're getting to the point where you're only talking about Christian. Principles, principles, and leaving out other religious groups, um, holding up Europe, um, excuse me, holding up American principles, which is good, the Constitution thing, but you got to include African Americans in the destruct, uh, um, discussion. If African Americans. Trump has, Trump has always done that. There's been no Republican ever who's been more responsive and more advocates. For the black community, Rod, Rod, do you agree with me that Trump is the most pro-black Republican ever? Yeah, I think I think Tarif's talking about the party itself, not 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 necessarily Trump. He's talking about the party and 
But that's what I, th- I think he's talking about. But yeah, I agree. Yeah, Trump definitely, uh, for sure. Yeah. So, Tariq, what do you think? Well, yeah, yeah, that's that, uh, I agree. Yes, I was talking about the party itself because I'm I'm noticing something of almost like the the, the left is working behind the scenes to try to push the Republican Party to ultra right, not center right. Because if you pay attention to Europe, it's the center right parties that's winning. It's not the extreme. So right. I don't believe I don't believe in too far to the right. I don't believe it. It's a myth. It's a lie. As soon as the people talk about extreme right wingers, I know they're lying. I'm not saying you are. I'm saying I don't believe in that. Do you see what I'm saying, Rod? I get very nervous when people start talking about extreme right wing because they usually mean nothing by that. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, there's like rare cases where you could say, uh, you know, obviously like, um, What's that? What's that guy um, who got punched in the face in D.C.? I know you spoke to him before. Richard Spencer. Yeah, Richard Spencer. Someone like that. But I mean, that's it's only like you can only count on one hand, maybe. You know what I'm saying? So there's examples like that. I I wouldn't call that too far to the right. I'd call it racist, and I call racist a Democrat. The Democrats are the racist party, and they are not too far to the right. That but the Democrats are the party of abortion and the Ku Klux Klan. The Democratic Party has been responsible for the deaths of more black people than the Republicans. By supporting Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood and abortion, they have been responsible for the death of millions of black Americans. So I don't call it too far to the right. I call it racist. Am I wrong, Rod? No, hundred percent, Lee. But that's the examples they use, and that's what they regurgitate to people on all spectrums, and to you know, to the black to the black media through the uh, Spanish media, and so on. They use these examples, and that's what people get ingrained in their mind. Anyway, Tarif, I'll let you finish. I got to go in a minute here, so you get the last word. Go ahead, Tarif. Thank you, Lee. What I mean, too far for okay. You still got to have social programs in the cities for drug rehab, homeless programs, for the vets, things in the no one's, no one's talking about taking those away. Nobody. And the, the guy most likely to talk about taking those away would be Rand Paul. Yeah. Because he doesn't, he doesn't like wasteful spending. But no Republican is talking about, name a Republican ever who's talking about taking away all social programs. No one's talking about that. I see what you're saying, but yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that people fall into. It's an accusation, but it's not true. But great call, Tarif. Thanks for the call. We'll talk to you later. And uh, we're gonna. I, I was hoping to get these clips, but Reese is on the line. Reese Everson, Esquire, attorney and best-selling author. And she'll be with us right after this break on The Backstory. We are back on The Backstory and on the radio on 105.5 FM and AM 1390. Join us now 
attorney and best-selling author, speaker, Reese Everson. Hey, Reese, how you doing? Fantastic. How are you? I'm great. And great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. And before we get to debate you're going to be in this week and the political stuff, I want to ask you a question about handbags, believe it or not. May I? Sure. Now, this actually relates to politics. So Huma Abedin was Hillary Clinton's assistant, and she was married to Anthony Weiner. And I know something about Huma, but I don't understand it because I know nothing about handbags. Okay. When she was like, when she was 19, she was known for wearing this a different outfit at every social event. And she was apparently a fan of Mark Jacobs bags. Does that mean something to you? Because it doesn't mean anything to me. I, I don't know what Mark Jacobs bag is. Well, now here's my question to you. Was she a government employee at the time? No, she wasn't. She was a student at, I believe, Georgetown. Okay. Um, I don't know her net worth, but I will tell you, had you said Michael Kors, I would have said, well, that makes sense. You can get a Michael Kors bag from Macy's for about two, anywhere on sale for two fifty to maybe four ninety nine. But a Michael Michael's Kors bag retails now. Mind you, that means whether or not she um, actually retails it, but you can. Those probably are in the th- three, four, five thousand dollar bags. Uh, Mark, Mark, Mark Jacobs bag. Mark Jacobs, yes. Now. Also, I'll I'll speak as a guy here for a second. How could a bag possibly be worth five thousand bucks? Uh, is it made of gold? What's going on with that? Not in the least. And here's the funny thing: sometimes they're not even made from leather. If you can believe that, if, you know, typically if you go back into I don't know fashion fifteen twenty years ago, the reason that you spent money on um, let's say an Italian crafted leather bag is because it supposedly has such high levels of craftsmanship that is going to last you 20, 30 years. And the, you know, the quality of the leather is so high and so sturdy. It's so well-made that you can literally have it for your, it's an investment, so to speak. Whereas with Marc Jacobs and the bags now, uh, designers are really just charging um, for the ability to say that you have something that's of luxury that other people can't access. And so, yeah, those are some of the prices. I mean, you can find some lower price items, but typically uh, you'll get bags that go anywhere between four dollars $500 all the way up to 5000 So, and by the way, tell people what your website is, Reese. Okay, you can find it uh, me at www.mreeseeverson.com. And and if you go to Reese's website, you'll see that I didn't just ask for her bags merely because she's a woman. She talks about her affinity for handbags, right? Well, I do enjoy fashion. I'm, I've, I'll never deny that. I'm a woman who loves fashion, but I like fashion on a budget. Right. So you're not rocking the Mark Jacobs bags then? Well, you know. If I gave you one, you wouldn't throw it away, but, you know. I don't 
know which one she had because if I look at their site right now, they've got a bunch of bags that are, you know, four, five, six, seven hundred dollars versus the uh, five, six thousand dollars. But they have different lines. They have the ready to wear, which is the stuff that they kind of sell to the average person. And they've got the runway stuff. So it really depends. And if she's wearing a different one each day or every, you know, that means she's got, you know, at least five or ten of them. Um, then she's definitely spending $5,000 on handbags. I like fashion, but I think that because it's, you know, just something that you wear, you invest in it in good pieces, but you shouldn't spend more than what you can afford to spend. Right. So I, I do find it very interesting that that is what she had when she was very young and at Georgetown. But around Washington, D.C., I've been told that, that kind of, this is a Washington D.C. is a town that likes fashion, isn't it? Ah, uh, you know, have you heard the phrase "the Hollywood of the East"? Yes, I would definitely agree that D.C. is the Hollywood of the East. Um, the celebrities are politicians, and they're not as uh, glamorous or gorgeous. And you know, you do have a, a group of people who do very well in their careers, and so they like some of the finer things. And so you'll get people like, you know, the Housewives of Potomac and all of these people who try to show how luxurious their life is. So you can get a few. Yeah, you, I, I would say that. Now, let me ask you about one other thing. I was looking at your books earlier, and a number of them are in the Babes series, B-A-B-E-S. But with periods after each letter, what is the Babe series? What does Babe stand for, Reese? Well, thank you for asking. So the Babe series, which is an acronym standing for Beautiful, Ambitious, Brilliant Entrepreneurs Designated for Succeed, Designated to Succeed, um, it's really a group of women who are not just you know, we're attractive women and we get caught up on our looks, but we actually have substance. We have character. We have integrity and we make decisions and, and based our, how we navigate life based on, you know, principles that tie back to my, you know, Christianity and what God says you're supposed to be as a woman um, and who God has called you to be. And, and not so much as, you know, just all of this, you know, um, Society says to, you know, exploit yourself and, and reveal your body and all that kind of stuff. We like to use our minds and, you know, that sort of thing. And what one of the books, uh, uh, there's the numbers in the series. What do you tend to f write about in the books? Well, all of the books, some, for the most part, have a, a foundation in, um, one, self-help, two, uh, religious, I won't say religious, but just spiritual in, enlightenment and empowerment. And then thirdly, financial literacy, um, whether you're dealing with a woman that's in the workplace and she's trying to figure out how to excel in her career, that's the first one, the Babe's Guide to Winning in the Workplace, You Don't Have to Compromise. Um, the second one, the Babe's Guide to Generational Wealth, talks about investing, whether that's cryptocurrency, real estate. Um, having great credit, paying back student loans, um, or paying for, you know, your education. That's, um, you know, all, some of the stuff that's in the second one. 
The third one is in, in women dealing with finances, with uh, relationships, marriage, and, and dating. Now, that's great, Reese. Now, let's talk about the debate you're going to be in coming up. It's apparently about black people who are both Democrats and Republicans discussing the various issues. Explain where this is going to be held and what is it going to be about. Absolutely. So coming up this Saturday, I will be uh, part of a panel uh, called the Black American Culture War Showdown. It's a live in-person debate, October 15th at 6 p.m. It's going to take place at the Ronald Reagan Building of International Trade, which is in downtown D.C. You can just Google that. Um, at 6 o'clock, be there, and you can, I believe, uh, get tickets at the door. And this is going to basically be a debate between the left and the right. And we're, we've got um, pretty much three-on-three, three, if you will, of, of people who are political um, savants who have worked in you know, advocacy. Um, civil, we've got a civil rights attorney, a democratic strategist, um, myself as an attorney and advocate. Then we've got some research fellows on the other side. Um, and GOP strategists and commentators. So you've got a you've got a bunch of people that are really going to sit down and talk shop. Now, so when you were talking about this stuff in the books, it occurred to me that it, it's stuff that I would think would sound to some people like a Republican wrote it. Because when you're talking about faith and religion in general, and also prosperity, making money, and so on. I associate that with a Republican more than a Democrat. Do you see what I'm saying? I, I, I guess I can hear where you're coming from, because I do know of a number of um, African-American pastors who are Republicans, and they do preach prosperity, and it's, you know— versus the maybe other messages of um, God wants you to suffer and, and struggle is, you know, it will make you closer to the Lord. But I will say this, I don't write the book as a person of any particular political leaning. And although on the debate panel, I am considered someone on the left, um, I would definitely say I'm a moderate in the sense that I am independent, more important. Um, I don't have any type of ideology that I, you know, feel swayed by on one side or the other, because sometimes, you know, everybody gets it wrong. <laughs> but I hear what yes. you're saying. So, you know, the prosperity uh, or even just building wealth, the ideology of building wealth um, is very much biblical. And it's, it's weird because, you know, when we go to the Bible, there's a story where God is actually upset when a person does not use the gifts and talents that they've been given to multiply them. There's a story of the um, um, the, te uh, the 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 master who goes away and he has three servants, and when he returns, he had given one servant five talents, he had given another servant two talents, he had given another servant one talent, and he asked those servants, "What have you done with what I've given you?" And the one who was given five, he said, well, I took it and I worked with the money exchangers and I multiplied it and I made 10. The master said, very good. 
Then he talked to the next servant. He said, well, I took the two you gave me and I doubled it. So now I have four. He said, very good. Then he asked the servant who he gave one. He said, what did you do with the gifts that I, the talents that I've given you, which is really, you know, an investment of money or some type of, you know, thing that you could use as a tool. He said, well, I was afraid I didn't want to lose it because if I lost it, you'd be afraid of, uh, you'd be upset with me. So I took it and I buried it in the ground and I hid it. So I still have that one that you gave me. And the master rebuked him and said, this is an evil mindset because you're supposed to take what's given to you and multiply it. You put your gifts and your talents out there and you multiply them. And so for me, there's nothing about the Bible that says, you know, struggle, be poor, and, um, you know, have nothing. I mean, there's, there's people who are rich who are told to give away. Uh, it's better to give away everything you have than to not be able to see God. But that's basically saying that God can't, your, your money can't be your God. But there's really nothing that I've ever seen that says, oh, you have to commit to be poor if you follow God. No, so I agree with you that the Bible doesn't say that. But I will argue that a lot of Democrats kind of do. Do you see Democrats don't support success and financial independence enough, Reese? What do you think about that? I hear where you're coming from. I think that there should be a, a larger push in empowering people, empowering businesses. Don't just focus on, you know, there are some people who come uh, or who have very limited resources and they don't even have the one talent. There's people, you know, economically who are the, the poorest of us, among us, and they need a hand up. But after that, there should be pathways to prosperity that teach you how to build businesses, that teach you enterprise, that help you go to trade schools and things of that nature so that there is a, that you acquire some sort of value that you can, you know, bring to the world, some type of skill set. And I think, unfortunately, if the Democrats um, have, you know, people in position to just be beholden to, you know, the handout or the hand up, for their entire lives, they're doing those people a disservice. No, I, I think you're exactly right. And I think that's, now we had yesterday, Tulsi Gabbard quit the Democratic Party to no one's surprise. So to, one of the things Tulsi said is she feels the Democrats have a very uh, narrow ideas. Basically, if you don't go along with their ideas, they they don't like that. Have you experienced that with Democrats at all, that they have a narrow ideology and that they the other thing she said was that the Democrats don't like debate. They don't like discussion about it. They say this is the agenda. And if you don't go along with it, you're attacked and canceled. Do you agree with Tulsi? Now, I will say that today is not the day that I woke up and decided to agree with Tulsi Gabbard. Today is not that day. Um, I will say that I have in the past done several things to hold the Democrat Party accountable. I grew up um, in a home where we voted Democrat. Um, in 2008, I was a voter protection 
um, attorney boots on the ground during the Obama election. And I was in Michigan uh, making sure that people in Detroit, African-Americans who were coming to vote, would not be able to, would not have their vote challenged and wouldn't be deterred by Republicans coming in from, you know, Macomb County and, and more uh, white neighborhoods saying, oh, well, you're, you're not on the voter roll. You need to go home. You know, basically voter suppression. I actually was a part of uh, what I would call the solution to make sure that, you know, African-Americans had the right to vote and they were able to exercise that freely. Um, what I will say is that there are a number of issues in the Democrat Party. And when I decided to speak up and push back, I was silent. I won't say that I agree with Tulsi because Tulsi has said that there's a lot of anti-white racism that she's walking away from. And for the life of me, I, I can't agree with that. There, I, she spoke about wokeness. I can understand that. She spoke about anti-white racism. But as far as her attempt to, you know, debate or have conversation about it, um, I don't know that either party is going to let you sway too far from their talking points. That's just my, that's how it seems to me. I don't know that either party is open to letting you move too far. I mean, I can't imagine if she decided to get to or sign up as a Republican that they would let her speak about being pro-abortion if she were. You know what I mean? Well, there are pro-choice Republicans. There are some people, and a lot of Republicans, I will say, are open to all sorts of positions on that. But in the election last year, Pete Buttigieg said Democrats are not allowed to be pro-life. And, uh, you know, I've thought about this in terms of the Congressional Black Caucus. When I was covering a story down in the, the South a few years ago, I noticed a lot of black people who are rural who live in the country are pro-life because they're rural people and people exactly right. But no one on the Democratic, the Congressional Black Caucus, there's not one single person who is pro-life. And Pete Buttigieg did say that, that we don't want any pro-life people in, in the Democrat Party. What's your personal opinion? Would you oppose someone who was a pro-life Democrat, you personally, Reese? No, I wouldn't. Um, I, I think that there should be room. First of all, when it comes to people that are black, African-American, there's no monolith. You've got, like you said, people in the Bible Belt who are in the rural South who are very much, you know, believers of the principle that God, life starts at conception, God created life, et cetera, et cetera. And then you'll have people who are, you know, less religious and they live in, you know, maybe New York and um, Chicago and they don't um, follow any type of guidelines from the Bible. And they believe that you should be able to have a, a termination up to 16 weeks or, or what, or, you know, or beyond. And so I think that there definitely has to be space for both of these ideologies in the party. But I can, I can imagine that, there's a lot of financial support from organizations that are pushing uh, for women's rights and reproductive rights and justice. And so a lot of times it's really about, 
you know, who's receiving that funding. And the messaging is based on the funding. Well, I got to say, Reese, I think if you're in charge of the Democrat Party, Tulsi would not have left because it's an admirable position that you're taking, allowing people different opinions. So hats off to you. So, Reese, you mentioned you're, you're from Detroit. Is that correct? Yes, sir. So here's a question for you, and I'm not going to just pick on Detroit because lots of places like Kensington in Philadelphia, you know, I've, I've been looking at some of these. Everyone's seen footage on YouTube of some neighborhoods in Detroit. They're basically trashed, you know, abandoned houses and so on. And I, we were talking about it on the show a couple of weeks ago, and I was saying I have no idea if I were put in charge, I would have no idea what the hell to do there. Do you have any ideas on, you know what I'm talking about, some of these inner city neighborhoods that are so far gone with the abandoned buildings and- Absolutely. You, the blight. The so, blight is so if you're put in charge of Maurice, what would you do? Well, here's what here's where we go with that. And, and I will agree that there are neighborhoods that I've seen where you literally have four houses total on the whole block of, of a block that used to have, you know, eight to 12, eight to 14 homes on each side. And now they have a total of four. Um, yes. That's disturbing. But here's what I need you guys to realize. Two things. Back when Jennifer Granholm was the governor, the big three of Michigan up and left. Now you say, well, who's the big three? The big three is Chrysler, GM, and Ford. Those um, automotive companies and that, that industry as a whole used to support Michigan or carry Michigan on its back. And you would have people that were unskilled labor or skilled labor coming out of high school, able to go to the factory and make a very, very good living working at the autom- in the automotive industry, whether it's at the factory, um, for Chrysler, or even a company that made like the, the, the cloth for the seat or some type of support, you know, an axle, American axle. These were companies that, that made products for, for the automotive, you know, industry. Um, and so they could go and work at these companies and take care of their families. When those jobs left, when those factories closed down, you had people who were not retrained without any tools for how to su- survive and thrive and take care of their families. A lot of them had to move. A lot of people lost their homes. And then the Great Recession hit in 08. So you've got a lot of negative financial um, in- incidents happening simultaneously or close in time in Detroit and nothing coming to replace that. If I were in charge, I would say, well, listen. You've got young men in high school who might be bored, who don't see a way out, who don't see economic opportunity. What if we made it possible for them to learn the art of rebuilding these homes and, and gave them credit for that and helped them, you know, acquire their journeyman's license, their electrician license, their um, carpentry license or, or whatever, and so that they can then take on these skills that they'll be able to use for the rest of their lives. But not only that, it gives them incentives to buy properties that have been abandoned, 
and to go in and fix them and repair them and to own them? What if you give them a pathway to ownership? People who are struggling and have nothing, they don't know how to go about purchasing something from the land bank and getting the funding. But if you give them a pathway and you say, listen, I'm going to give you this house. It's worth, I mean, a lot of these homes on the land bank are selling for four and $5,000 a pop, and these are brick homes, but they are completely gutted and need to be rehabilitated from the ground, you know, from the inside out. Well, if you begin to teach these people, these young people, how to rebuild certain properties and to work with one another, one guy will say, hey, well, I'm going to, I'm going to get my electric, my electric electrician um, journeyman, and I'm going to go, and this other guy says, well, I'm doing heating and cooling. And the other guy says, well, I'm doing um, plumbing. And you guys all figure out how to work together on this house and move to the next one. Now, this house is going to be given to Tommy. But when you finish Tommy's house, you guys go over to Brandon's house. And when you finish Brandon's house, you'll go over to the house that was given to Christopher. And now we've all worked together, and you guys have done three houses, and you now all own something. And you're fresh out of high school. So that's a fantastic idea, Reese. And I actually used to work with an organization that did that in Kansas City. They would rebuild homes in bad neighborhoods, and the homeless people would rebuild a home. But I think by adding the concept of ownership in there, you know, we've talked about reparations on this show at various times, and without getting into reparations, a lot of times when people hear about reparations, they think of giving someone a check. And I've always said that the original idea uh, back when the slaves were freed was 40 acres and a mule. And that 40 acres and a mule idea, I think, was important because if you give someone a check, they can blow it on crack or, you know, I'm not saying they could hang out with Hunter Biden or whatever. But if you give them property, land, if they own something, right, that creates a much more viable situation. Do you, do you, do you see what I'm getting at there, Reese? I'm clear. I actually have read the Freedmen's um, Doctrine, uh, uh, the, the document that was created in 1865 for the Freedmen, which actually said that if you, you know, for all of those who have been emancipated, it would be wrong to just give you your freedom and then leave you out to dry with nothing. That's effectively putting you back into slavery. We are, we are going to uh, establish the Freedmen's Bureau so that you can have um, or have the right to earn in the process, I believe, of three years this land, and you can work it. And that is a totally different, it, it, that is in itself, what was what would make a humongous difference in getting people now, back on their feet and allowing them to be active citizens of the United States of America? Now, Reese, I don't say this is an insult, so don't take this the wrong way. But do you realize that if you propose that, a lot of Republicans would agree with you? I just I don't think they would, and here's why. I just heard uh, what's his. Um, Tell, tell, hold on. I'll tell you his name in a second. I just heard from Tommy Tuberville from Alabama saying they want reparations. They want your land. They don't deserve it. 
So I'm not sure who he's talking about. But, Rod, do you agree with me? A lot of Republicans would agree with what Reese was talking about. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. And, and the problem with the senator from uh, Auburn, uh, from Texas, he used to be the football coach over at Auburn, is that he's making it a zero-sum theory, and he's trying to stoke fear in his base. And he did a speech out in Minden, Nevada, where he was talking to the audience and telling them, well, these people, uh, the Democrats want to, you know, turn land, you know, give reparations to people who are criminals. They're all criminals. This is how Superville was referencing African-Americans and then saying that they want reparations and they want to give people who commit crime reparations. They want your land. They're not entitled to that. They don't deserve it. So I'm telling you, try it out on Republicans and see see how they like it. Because I'm telling you, I really think a lot of Republicans would completely agree with what you said, Reese. And I, I think that they're not presented that that idea very often. And a lot of Democrats do seem... It's the original idea. No, I agree, but... It's the narrowness. That's the thing I thought Tulsi said was important, was the narrowness of most ideas. Most Republicans and most Democrats don't aren't creative thinkers. Does that make sense? <laughs> well, yeah, you, you might have something going there. Because I will say it was creative as all get out to, to uh, send um, immigrants to Martha's Vineyard. There was, that's creativity. George Abbott, I give it to you. And and real quickly, because we're almost out of time, do you have an opinion on Kanye West, not musically, but uh, about what he's doing politically? Because I, I like Kanye, and I, I think that he's thinking outside the box. That's that, that creativity I was talking about. So real quickly, what's your quick opinion on Kanye? I think he's trying to think. At, in, in general, he's trying to think. Most people aren't. He's trying to critically think. The issue I have yes. is that he doesn't read books. And in order to understand, to know your history, uh, people who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. He's got to be able to read and understand historical things in order to move forward into the future where he's trying to go. So I do not have an issue with him attempting to critically think. Reese, we're out of time. Fantastic parents and great conversation. Thanks so much, Reese Everson. Let's take a break and we'll come back and talk about more stuff on The Backstory. Back on the backstory, the show that takes you to the truth behind the headlines. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is the backstory. So, Rod, Fantastic Parents by Reese Everson. And I'm telling you, Rod, Reese Everson, if she chose to, could be the next Candace Owens. Do you agree? Uh, 
Mm-hmm. In, a, in a way, I guess I guess, you, I guess you're talking about popularity, but yeah, if you're talking popularity wise, yeah. But you know, yeah. Candace Owens kind of uh, she throws people under the bus, and I, I don't I wouldn't want that about, uh, to know about that about Reese. I don't I don't want to put that on her. And uh, I'm not going to say because I don't know, but but I know people, black conservatives, who also feel that way about Candace. They've you're repeating what they've said to me, and. Uh, she doesn't have a good rep, but I didn't mean as, as an insult. I just meant when you when you have someone. I think the fundamentals of what she's saying, the fact that she's not ashamed of making money, but also brings in the religious aspect somewhat. All of that would go over really well with Republicans, and we'll see if she faces pushback from the Democrats. I wouldn't be surprised if Reese basically is treated very harshly by Democrats. Would you, Rod? Um, harshly, uh, I don't know. I think she's. I think she can stand her ground. Um, and so you know, people who stand their ground, they usually don't uh, get confronted that much. But um, she probably does get some type of criticism here and there. Yes. Now, coming up to this hour, we have the great Ted Rawl and Rod. Take us to the boom. You listen to the best show on the radio, The Backstory. Now, I'm getting to the boom because I want to get to these Biden clips. First off, let's do Biden talking about Putin, because we know we've talked about all the terrorism that Ukraine's doing. And yet Biden is out there attacking Putin. And it's typical. But let's play the clip. Here's Biden on Putin. Be prepared for some stupidity. Go ahead. Hit it. Do you think Putin is a rational actor? I think he is a rational actor who's miscalculated significantly. I think he thought, uh, you you may recall, I pointed out that they were going to invade, that all those 100,000 or more troops there, and no one believed that he was going to invade Ukraine. You listen to what he says. If you listen to the speech he made after when that decision was being made, he talked about uh, the whole idea of he was needed to be the leader of Russia that united all the Russian speakers. I mean, it just I, I just think it's irrational. So if, if he's not rational and no, I didn't say he's not rational, you said the speech is what I think. Rational. I think the speech is okay. His objectives were not. I think he thought. Jake, I think he thought he's going to be welcome with open arms. That this was this has been the, the home of Mother Russia and Kiev, and and were, he was going to be welcomed. And I, I think he just totally miscalculated. So you talked about this um, a few days ago, the search for an off ramp for him because his back is against the wall. There are questions about how rational he's, he is. He already was a brutal dictator. What is the off ramp? Is there any acceptable way that he can? leave um, in his mind without seizing territory in a way that would not be acceptable to Ukraine. I don't know what's in his mind, but clearly he could leave. He could just flat leave and still probably hold his position together in Russia. The idea that he's been able to uh, convince the significant Russian America of the the Russian people that uh, this is uh, um, something that he thought made sense, but now he's accomplished what he wanted to do, and it's time to bring Russians home. Would you be willing to meet with him at the G20? 
Well, look, I have no intention of meeting with him, but uh, for example, if he came to me at the G20 and said, I want to talk about the release of Griner, I'd meet with him. I mean, it would depend. Now, listen, you desperate old coot. Let me explain something to you. First off, Putin never said he did not miscalculate. He never said that he would be greeted by the Nazis with open arms. Did I miss that, Rod? Did Putin say the Nazis love me? No, so, I'm, I'm, I mean, that's just so it's just so stupidly. I mean, come on. And what he did say was the you know, Biden said it under his breath. The Russian speakers, the Russian speakers in Donbass took a vote. And recently they voted 98 percent to become part of Russia. So those Russian speakers, I would say, did welcome Putin with open arms. And some might say open legs, because 98 percent is a huge number. Right, Rod? <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's a that's a good way to put it, Lee. But yeah, no, I mean, and it's, you're, you're right. I did catch that part, too. He did admit the Russian speaking part. And that's, uh, uh, you know, the majority of the public has no idea what the hell he's talking about. So. But the question I would ask Biden is, what about the people who voted overwhelmingly they want to be part of Russia? And the reason they voted that is Kiev was bombing them, killing civilians in Donbass. What about those people? If Putin leaves, what do those people do? Why would he leave? The people, he was welcome with open arms. So speech was pot on. And he did not miscalculate. He calculated exactly right that he had the support of Russian speakers in Ukraine. But they continually lie about what Putin thought and then call him a miscalculator or a brutal di- dictator. He's the kind of di- dictator who got 90% approval rating. So that was a, a moronic statement by Biden. And of course, the dishonest journalists don't dare ask him an honest question. They don't dare bring up the referendum or the fact that Ukraine was bombing people in Donbass. So a disgusting interview. Now, we talked about Hunter Biden briefly. Let's talk about Hunter Biden and see what Joe Biden thinks of his son, the crack addict and the criminal who was giving 10% to the big guy. And that's a big deal. Notice Biden doesn't want to talk about that. You'll notice that in this clip. Hit it. CNN's reporting in the Washington Post reporting suggests the prosecutors think they could, they have enough to charge your son Hunter uh, for tax crimes and a false statement about a gun purchase. Um, personally and politically, um, how do you react to that? Well, first of all, I, I'm, I'm proud of my son. This is a kid who got, uh, not a kid, he's a grown man. He got uh, hooked on, uh, uh, like many families have had happen, hooked on drugs. Uh, he's overcome that. He's established a new life. He is, um, uh, I'm confident that he is, what he says and does are consistent with what happens. Um, and, uh, for example, he wrote a book about his problems and was straightforward about it. I'm proud of him. He came along and said, by the way, this thing about a gun, I didn't know anything about it, but it turns out that when he 
made my application to purchase a, a gun. What happened was he stay. I guess you get asked. I don't guess you get asked the question. Are you on drugs? You use drugs? He said no. And he wrote about saying no in right. his book. So I, I, I have, I have great confidence in my son. I love him. And uh, he's on a straight and narrow and he has been for a couple of years now. And I'm just so proud of him. By the way, not a lot of families have a Hunter Biden in the family. People have addiction, and uh, we've had it in my family. But Hunter Biden is a special kind of addict. No one in my family ever overpaid for crack horse. Rod, you know anyone who's got Biden-level addiction? Anyone? Nah, I mean that's so crazy of of Biden to say, you know, you know, everyone, everyone's got problems in their family like this, and just like, not to the Hunter Biden level, you know, he's also leaving kids everywhere. Uh, You know, I think he got a stripper pregnant, and I think in in D.C. didn't want to claim the kid, and you know, he's he's over here, yeah, you know, just you know, and then he's recording himself doing all this crazy stuff, going down a slide naked. Like, come on, man, this guy is he's off the chain. Yeah. And it tells you something about Biden. You know what he's saying is he's proud of him, but if he, I, I I don't think that's the case. And also, the big issue is really the tax stuff because he did not pay taxes on his bribe from Burisma because there's no reason he was unqualified to be on the board of an energy company unless the energy was crack. And Burisma, I don't think, was in the crack business. Although with Zelensky, who knows? But uh, speaking of starting over my words, you sent me a clip of the Pennsylvania gubernatorial candidate, forgive me, Senate candidate, Betterman. And I've had a stroke, and obviously it affects my speech somewhat still. But this interview was mental and i would play a clip but you have to see it you agree rod yeah this is this is forget off the chain this is uh, out of this galaxy like you know this you just you got to use a computer with closed caption to speak to john fetterman for him to understand what you're saying right and and that's weird to me because i actually have trouble reading because my eyesight's bad so a closed caption if I, to talk to Rod, I had had closed captioning on what I was saying. That wouldn't help me a bit. But I found it disturbing, and apparently the voters of Pennsylvania find it disturbing because it's now neck and neck in Pennsylvania. And I think Dr. Oz, I don't think that interview with Fetterman reading off a teleprompter, basically, to do the interview, was going to help him one bit. I think people, does that make sense, Rod? I think Fetterman's done. I think he's going to lose at this point. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. And, um, you know, like like a lot of people have been saying, when they say it's a, it's a close race, that means the Republican's going to win because they're not, uh, you know, they're not counting the uh, the huge voter base that don't want to answer these questions in these surveys anymore. You know what I'm saying? Yes, exactly right. That's why I'm saying I think, this is a good possibility Fetterman will win. But let's go to the calls. 202-521-1320. Al Kittler, what's on your mind? Yeah, you're also not counting the uh, $850 billion, uh, mail-in ballots that are being filled out right now several times. 
by the same person. Um, you know, something, I, why can they not run a normal candidate? It, it's, it's really, it's, it's, inc- it's incredible. I almost feel like they are purposely br- bringing us to shame. To, it's like, it's like a, it's a, like a personal, uh, national suicide with, with the candidates that they run. Like you, there has to be somebody that can actually speak coherently that they could run. And it just seems, I mean, you notice, uh, I will say though, they haven't let Maxine Waters talk in probably two or three years. I don't know what's going on with her. I, I noticed they, they put her away and they're like, okay, you're a little too much, but I, I think Fetterman is worse than, uh, worse than, uh, the, the father of crack fusion, uh, Joe. That that was the that was the energy that uh, Hunter was working on with Burisma. It, it, it's just too classified to tell you. So what did you call about today, Alco? I'm sure you didn't call to talk about Fetterman. De- definitely not. So, you know, Tarif had what Tarif is really saying when he was talking about the they need some type of moderate Republicans. Okay, look, he he's right. The Republicans are going to have, he doesn't mean, he likes the, I think he likes the social conservative aspect. But what he's saying is the system is so unfair right now that Republicans are going to have to pick an issue, whether it's free college or it's some type of reduced health care cost or reduced health care program. They're going to have to pick one because you cannot have, you cannot run on this free market stuff. Which I am, I am a, I am a libertarian. I, I'm almost an anarcho, an anarcho, anarcho capitalist. But you cannot have that when you can print money out of thin air, because these, the corporations are, the, the banks and the corporations, they are robbing the taxpayer. They are robbing the American citizens. Every time they get money and spend it, they have stolen from you. Every time they print money, they have stolen from you. And people just cannot, you can't say, oh, you know, you can, you're going to make it in a free market economy. It ain't a free market anymore. Like, it it hasn't been a free market in 100 years, 100 plus years. So that's really what I think Sharif is. um, I, I think that's the point he was making. And let's be honest. The school system and the, the school system is based off of what was the 1850 industrial uh, industrialization uh, model. Do you need a college degree to be a cop, or or to be a barista at a at a Starbucks, or or to you know work for FedEx or UPS? I I think we should colleges need to be shut down. I'm I'm not kidding. Except for doctors, engineers, you know, lawyers. And in some specialized uh, career fields, like um, being a teacher, you go for classes that teach you how to teach as long as you're proficient in that subject. But th- this idea that you're because what they've done, what they've done with the college system is. But, but do you, you uh, so but do you think that idea is moderate republicanism? Because I agree with you, but it's not moderate. We, we need to shut down colleges is not moderate. I, when I say shut down colleges, this is what I mean. Federal student loans are over, and the universities will shut down because that is the that is the game that they've created. The federal government prints money; they give it to people to go to college. They loan the money to them. Then the students pay the university that indoctrinates them, steals everything, makes them hate their, puts them in a situation where 
they can't. They're not able to get a job because they're deg- they have a degree in worthlessness, and they ha- they come out of college. I mean, Andrew Breitbart had when he asked uh, when Andrew Breitbart was asked um, when he was confronted at some uh, some speech he was given. He told the he told the the communist uh, female that was confronting him, "You cannot make a widget." So you're gonna, you're unable to produce anything with your degree. So they're creating armies of people that are in debt to the system that hate that want to get people back because they think something's been stolen from them. But they really they've been wrecked by the system. They're actually victims. And Yuri Besmanov said these people, unless they have some type of earth shattering awakening, they cannot be reasoned like they're they're gone basically. They cannot be reasoned with. When people, when you see some of the because things, because they're indoctrinated in Frankfurt School Marxism. Yes, absolutely, and they cannot be reasoned with. Like he said, they'll go to the, they'll go to a gulag, and they will not realize um, their ways until they have a military boot stomping on their skull. That that's what he said, and and I think he's and he said, in, and I think it was eighty six when he was talking to uh, who who was the one who wrote. Uh, um, Edward G. Griffin, probably w- one of the OGs of the anti-New World Order movement, he said that in the 80s that it's probably too far at this point. It would take 20 years to create, to, to re, because it would take a generation at least to educate patriotic Americans again. And just, just at that time, like people are, uh, the the desperation in this country is people don't know what to do. They're so far along in life, and they don't want to admit to themselves, I have been lied to. I don't have the skills to be, you know, yes, what are you doing in the event of an economic collapse? That's why, that's why there's so much hatred in this country. It's really that people feel, they feel that they've been failed. They don't know who did it to them, and they want, they want to get somebody back. But it's really because they're scared to death. They know they can't produce anything. They, they, great analysis, as usual, Owl Killer. we got to move along for time reasons, but great call, Owl Killer. Thanks so much. 202-521-1320. Mark in New York, you're on the backstory. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I just wanted to comment on some of the things that the gentleman who just spoke was saying. Um, I think what we're seeing in uh, mature capitalist markets and the the basic monopoly capitalism is prevailing and rentier capitalism, where basically the government borrows money, of course, and it does it, it plans and it provides college scholarships and so forth, which is a good thing. And I think because of the random and these so-called concepts of free market capitalism, as the market as the markets get captured by capitalists, the monopoly capitalists in particular, or a very few, they determine what the mar- what the market needs. And so, so government and people can't. Mark, let me ask you one question: What freaking free market are you saying? I I don't see a laissez-faire system. I see a massive amount of government intervention and control. So what free market are you talking about? I said there isn't a free market. There is monopoly capitalism. So that's okay, I misheard. Excuse me. Interest. They're not even competing interests. The national business organizations, largest part, the largest of their group, and not the small businessman. So we know there's a big partitional divide there. But what I am saying, only government 
and the rule and the responsibility of government and the social contract or the economic contract with the nation, with the people, is to govern in the interest of the future of the people. So the problem is when you have a free market capitalism that overly captures the political uh, market or the politicians as well as the market, they direct the, the resources and what we will invest in the future. We have centralized planning, and I'm not saying it's the, 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 the ultimate benefit of it, but one of the things that China was able to do, and Russia, and so-called communist nations we, we, we talk about, was centralized planning. If you have that, then all of these things, we saw, we, saw, we, we talk about these liberal arts degrees, and they are good. They're relevant to analytical skills and, the, and investment toward the future when you can properly determine that your people are going in what direction when resources are invested properly. But when you have a market that's subject to the wind, and that's what America has been experimenting in, and what the irony is that we're all in this boiling pot with the assumption that, okay, we know about the, the socialists and the communists. But you know what I'm saying? You're living in a capitalist nightmare right now. And we're, we find this out every 10 years or every big recession, and now we're going to a worse one. We kicked the can down from 2008, and this is just a further result of what we're going to expect. Our political class has been captured for a long time. It's so bad that essentially we can't even find our ways out of that. So I'm going to leave it there because I want to be as precise as possible. I challenge the notion of this free market capitalism because it, there is no free market. And the fact is that we're, our, our country is run by elites, and as a result, we get what we get, like Ukraine. And as far as the Biden thing, he, he ought to be charged with criminal invasion of taxes, but also with a foreign um, lobby without license. I mean, Biden and his son, that's a criminal act. That's what they got some of those guys on, right? Mark, great call. And I got to move on for time because I got a couple of clips too. I would say that we are in a consumerist, technocratic fascism. I would define our, our current situation that way. But I want to get to these clips. Now, the big story, Rod, you know about this. We haven't talked about it at all. Apparently, the Darshenko, that name sounds Russian, by the way. But the Darshenko trial is going on in Washington. And I'm, I'm not saying anything, Rod, but I'm a little surprised you, you're not down there. Because you often get to these trials. Do you think you're going to attend the Darshenko trial? Possibly. I was trying to get there one day. Um, it was my fiance's birthday. So, you know, that's why. Uh, that's the only reason I wasn't able to. Uh, no, start good priority. Yeah, you're a smart yeah. man. <laughs> so, so uh, the Darshenko trial is going on. And it came out today. What, when they interviewed Brian Otten, the FBI agent, that the FBI had offered Christopher Steele a million dollars. Did you see that, Rod? Oh, yeah, Lee, 100%. <laughs> now, there's a lot I need to go over, but I'm not going to do it now. But don't forget, what Steele was doing was he was using Darshenko as a primary subsource for his dossier in the attempt to get a FISA warrant against Carter Page, who was a consultant for the Trump campaign and had some dealings in Russia. By the way, the Russians didn't like him. Carter Page was not popular with, with, with Russians. And uh, I'd pointed out that Andrei Telzenko, the ambassador from Ukraine, was tasked by the Ukrainian embassy with writing up 
his own dossier on Carter Page in May of 2016. And I have a copy of it. So I know that date. And then the FBI went to interview Christopher Seale. And they said, we'll give him a million dollars if you can corroborate that. Now, isn't that witness tampering? Well, I would think so, Lee. And, and you know, you know, uh, where's whose whose money is that? That's not, you know, the FBI's personal piggy bank. That would be our taxpaying money. And so real quickly, and Ted, I want to play one clip before we get to, I understand Ted's online. And we'll get to Ted after this clip and after a short break. Let's play the clip with Cash Patel, who used to be uh, the guy who was heading up in Congress the committees that were dealing with this stuff. Cash Patel talked about the Christopher Seal offer of a million dollars. Let's play that. Hit it. Me, the lead Russiagate investigator, who sent out with Devin Nunes 17 congressional speedness for information specifically related to payments and confidential human sources, were denied this information, and we learn it four years after our investigation. That means somebody obstructed a congressional investigation with congressional subpoenas. That's a story for another day. Me, as a national security prosecutor... I would say I'm floored by this, but the FBI corruption, as you, John, and and Amanda and I have talked about, never seems to amaze me. The Confidential Human Source Corruption Cover-Up Network, as I have called it, is now yet in play again. We proved the dossier was full of garbage, and we proved that the FBI knew it was false information, but they went ahead and lied to a federal court anyway. Now, your breaking news shows us the depths that they would go to to falsely corroborate the Steele dossier, which, as you pointed out, shows they didn't have it verified, which we've said the whole time. And more importantly, they were willing to spend a million taxpayer dollars on shoveling political hot garbage through the federal court system just to surveil a political target that would have been totally baseless. It was baseless then. This extra layer adds another reason for Chris Ray's immediate impeachment and the immediate exposure of all these documents. And that's Cash Patel. And I will add that The other purpose of this whole thing was to demonize Vladimir Putin and Russia. One aspect of this that doesn't get talked about enough is the real target, as we're seeing today, was Vladimir Putin and Russia. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, we're talking to Ted Rawl on what is today the Ted Rawl Network, the Ted Rawl Radio Network in Washington, D.C. So let's take a short break, and we'll come back and talk to Ted on the backstory. And we are back in the backstory. And on the radio in the Empire of Lies, the capital of the Empire of Lies, Washington, D.C., we're on 105.5 FM and AM 1390. Joining us now on the Ted Rawl Radio Network. Do you mind me using a name, Ted? Not at all. The, 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 uh, yeah, the T-R-R-N. It's catchy. I like it. Yeah, because when I turned on the show before us, 
by any means necessary. Sure enough, there you were. So that's your second appearance on the radio on Sputnik, but let's just call it the Ted Roll Radio Network. How are you doing today, Ted? I'm all the better for, for having been uh, christened as a, uh, as a as a broadcast network. I'm doing I'm doing well, Lee. How are you? I'm fine. And by the way, people, does your Twitter feed show the, the, your own personal four-legged Russian asset still? Oh yeah, uh huh, yeah. I still get those uh, every time I tweet out. Uh, it's you know anything from RT or Sputnik. I still get you know uh, I get the, the the Scarlet R. No, I was actually talking about your cat because I saw it in your profile on your Twitter profile. I he's think still there. Yeah, he he would not permit me to take him down. He's he's there. Yes, and I call him a Russian asset because I believe it's a beautiful cat. By the way, he's a Russian blue, correct? Yeah, he's a he is a purebred Russian blue, uh, and he is he is quite gorgeous. And apparently, the mascot of the Ted Rawl Radio Network. So. Uh, have you been paying attention to protests going on in France lately? Well, there's, you know, uh, ongoing protests. I uh, haven't heard, I have not followed the latest in the you know, last week or so. Well, it seems like there's some, I won't say huge, but moderately big protests where people in France are upset about the gas prices, or they call it petrol. That's confusing. But uh, the gas prices, and it, it seems like the yellow vests are somewhat back. And as the gas prices are sure to increase, and Macron's popularity is not sure to increase, I think you'll be seeing more protests. But let me ask you a question about the yellow vests, because they were protesting for months. Did all those protests actually accomplish anything dead you know they get they yeah i think they did um protests in france can can and and often do and in this case did uh you know involve some uh loss of property and some destruction and that does get the government's attention i mean you know this is if france is a country that has had numerous uh uprisings revolutions and attempted revolutions uh, in the you know throughout its history, and sometimes it's come to a sticky end for uh, the leaders there who have who are perceived as not being responsive to the people. So you would have to be a colossally out of touch French president or a politician to not pay attention to these things. I, I think uh, you know the people are there's you know that there's the protesters and who represent the tip of the iceberg of a certain point of a, a certain point of view. And the politicians are well aware of it. And of course, obviously, they have sophisticated polling. And they know there's, there's, some, there's discontent out there. And the Yellow Vest movement is interesting because it's really kind of uh, not, it doesn't follow traditional ideological lines. Uh, it's not a strictly, it's, you know, in some ways, it's a, it's a conservative movement. And sort of, you could draw some analogies to Trumpism. But on the other hand, it's, it's maybe more like uh, a Tea Party meets Occupy Wall Street, and uh, you know there's some common threads between the two of them. 
Do you think some of that has to do with the fact that the original Yellow Vest movement was more provincial? It, it, it tended to be people not in the cities, but out in the country. Ted, do you think that's a factor at all? Absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, there's, you know, like in the same way that there's a uh, urban, rural, red, blue divide in the U.S., uh, in France, it's even more pronounced. Um, you know, when you go into the countryside, they call it deep France, la, la France profonde. And it, you know, even there really kind of aren't very lefty, like, you know, sort of small country towns. Uh, it's, it's conservative out there. Uh, some provinces more than others, but uh, for sure, I think the character of the Yellow Vest movement was informed by the fact that it began out there, but then it took place in the cities and attracted the imagination of many people on the left. Yes, and it seems like these new protests are more city people. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Ted. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's easy for them. They, you know, they can all they have to do is step out of their apartments and, and join in. So, it, it's yeah, it's, it's not surprising to work out that way. Now, what what did you make of the events? It was a very busy weekend. Obviously, I said yesterday we had Scott Ritter on. That seemed like a couple of weeks since the the bridge was bombed. The Kirsch Bridge was bombed by a truck that was sent across by Ukraine, apparently. But uh, it seemed like a long time ago because we now have reprisals. Does it seem to you like, Ted, like the original bridge bombing happened a while ago? Does this, has time moved strangely for you? Um, maybe not as extremely. Like if you asked me like, oh, when did that happen? I would say, you know, it does feel like it was about 10 days ago. And, um, you know, the, the part that's, you know, what seems like happened really a long time ago was like the bombing of the Nord Stream pipe, pipe, pipeline, which, you know, did not really wasn't that long ago at all. Yes. And you also had the assassination of Dario Dugan. And you saw the New York Times have reported that that assassination was carried out by Ukraine. Do you think stuff like that on its own as a sufficient reason for the U.S. not to help Ukraine when a government is doing stuff like assassination bombings, do you think we should not deal with them as a country? Well, I have. I mean, I think we have better reasons not to deal with them as a country. Um, you know, big ideological reasons like a, they're not an ally, and b, the U.S. would do exactly the same thing in if it were in Russia's position. Uh, vis-a-vis Canada or Mexico becoming basically an enemy state right on its border, uh, you know, the U.S. would do exactly the same thing. So uh, for those reasons. But, I mean, I do. I have talked to some very pro-Ukraine uh, friends of mine, you know, sort of traditional corporate Democrats, and it's true that the, the assassination, uh, you know, the car bombing left a pretty bad taste in their mouths, and it's one of those things like, oh, you know, I'd rather not think about it or talk about it, but it's there. And um, I think I think that the bridge bombing is viewed differently as more of a legitimate military attack by those people. But what is clear is that the polling on, in terms of U.S. support for uh, giving weapons to Ukraine is, those numbers are way down, and they're tanking 
they're, they're way down among Republicans, and but, you know they're they're, uh, they're fading fast even among Democratic voters. So you know there's there's not much. So I think as more of these things happen, that you know that 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 fall off, that drop off is going to continue. And I think the triumphalism is also kind of playing a role there. It's sort of like the, you know, Ukraine's winning. Ukraine's going to win like tomorrow, next week. Uh, I mean, the week after that, uh, week after that. And, you know, when you're told repeatedly, uh, you know, Americans lo- really uh, love things to happen very quickly. And when they don't get that immediate satisfaction, you know, they sort of, they get disappointed and, and they change the channel. I think that's kind of what's happening here. Now, Ted, I think I know you well enough to know that the next question is going to produce a complex answer from you. Ready? <laughs> okay. What do you think of yesterday's announcement by Tulsi Gabbard that she was leaving the Democrat Party? So go ahead. Uh, agreed? You have complex thoughts, I'm guessing, about Tulsi leaving, right? Am I right? I think it's inevitable. I, I think anyone would have complex thoughts about her because she, she, you know, it's the kind of announcement that raises more questions than answers. Uh, you know, like, okay, so is she going to become a Republican? Is she going to remain? Is she going to be an independent? She doesn't say, uh, you know, she, she, is she going to run for office again? Or is she just going to be a media personality again? She doesn't say, uh, you know, it's, it's, so I think, yes, it's, I have complicated thoughts about it. I think, I think she's a really interesting person and I'm glad she's involved in American politics, but her ideology, aside from being sort of inconsistent and not following traditional left versus right lines, which, you know, who cares? Doesn't matter to me. Uh, the, the problem is it doesn't seem internally consistent. Like for example, She's anti-war, except she's pro-drone. She's anti-war, except she's pro-veteran. Um, so, and she runs on her military experience. So, I mean, it's kind of like, I, I, if I were advising her, and I don't think she's had good advisors, I think, you know, she needs to tease out her messaging, uh, even if she just be- becomes a media personality, so people sort of understand where she's coming from. I, I don't think they do. Now, and by the way, I was satisfied with the complexity of your response. So you you did not let me down, Ted. Uh, let me ask your opinion. I'm sure you're not a fan of the two-party system. But do you think the government needs, in the U.S., we need something more than we've had? Is the two-party system a failure, in your opinion? And going forward, would you like to see more parties? Uh, yeah, no, two parties isn't enough. And, you know, I know I'm not the only one who thinks so because of voter participation rates. Uh, countries, electoral democracies that have two-party or sort of de facto two-party systems, like the U.K., Canada, and uh, Japan, have loader, significantly lower voter participation rates than uh, electoral democracies that have multi-party parliamentary systems. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's easy to see why. I mean, you know, someone like me, for example, who in the U.S. is probably closest to the Green Party, well, you know, I, I can vote for the Green Party, but what for? The Green Party is never going to be, they're never going to be in the government. In a parliamentary system, 
the Green Party could join a multi-party coalition and might have some of its bills considered and even passed by Parliament. So that motivates someone like me to go to the polls more. So, yeah, no, I think uh, there's just no way that two parties, even two great parties, could possibly effectively serve a diverse population of 330 million Americans. There's just no way. And I think especially since one of those parties, the Democrats, I think more than the Republicans, has a flattening effect because they allow such a narrow range of views. Do you think Tulsi Gabbard, as an anti-war Democrat, would have had a place 25 years ago in the Democratic Party? Today, she has no place, right? That's true. Um, Even someone like Bernie Sanders votes for military spending bills. Um, You know, even Elizabeth Warren votes for military appropriations. You know, I mean, it was not long ago that the, you know, why did the Vietnam War end? You know, Congress stopped passing military spending bills. I mean, you know, they literally was like the Pentagon wasn't going to get any more money for bullets. So, you know, that's why we withdrew. Uh, That's not that long ago, um, but that was a majority Democratic Congress did that. Uh, you know, now, like as you say, there's not one. I think there's um, uh, Barbara Lee. That's it. She's the only one. Right. And even Ro Khan said some stuff recently that was very pro-war. So, uh, Ted, while you're on a complexity role, and you, you mentioned his name, what are your thoughts? I'm not. I'm going to leave it wide open. A wide open question. What are your thoughts on Bernie Sanders? In general? Yeah, in general. Well, I think I, I think Bernie Sanders is basically a throwback to the old liberal wing of the Democratic Party. He's indistinguishable ideologically, uh, or and stylistically, from say a George McGovern or a Hubert Humphrey. You know, that kind of person. I mean, he wasn't the right, he wouldn't have been a right wing Democrat like Scoop Jackson. Um, and he's, it's, he's great. I mean, look, I think he has integrity uh, as far as, you know, a U.S. senator can have integrity. Um, he does. Uh, but it's very, um, you know, but obviously he's had to play ball. And unfortunately, um, you know, as politicians on the left, and, and pundits on the left get older, they tend to, to tire of being an outsider. They want to be brought into the fold. They want to be the spy who came in from, the, from out of the cold. And, and I think Bernie's doing that. You know, I mean, hell, we're seeing that like with Ralph Nader and people like that now. Uh, it's really dispiriting. I hope someone, you know, shoots me before I do that. Uh, it's just... I'll volunteer, Ted. <laughs> Pardon? I, I'm your friend. I'll volunteer. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. So, you know, do you think Bernie Sanders was brought to heel by the Hillary Clinton wing of the Democratic Party? And do you think he he gave in more than he had to? I think he did not have to compromise that much, personally. I agree with you. I mean, I think he, look, I think he was, it's a combination of being brought to heel, but maybe it's a little more being seduced. I think 
you know, he was, he was offered, uh, you know, sort of an insider spot in the Democratic Party, some nice committee chairmanship, um, you know, sort of the uh, ability to be like a respected elder statesman instead of the independent socialist kook from, from Vermont. So uh, I think it's a seduction. And, you know, I, I, I'm, it's sad to see, but it's not surprising. He didn't, you know, I, I agree he didn't have to give in as much. But, you know, there were lots of accounts from inside his, particularly his 2016, but also his 2020 campaign that said, from people who said that, you know, Bernie just, he, he, he's too much of a, he's either a wimp or he's too much of a gentleman to fight, depending on your point of view. But, but he's, you know, he, he doesn't, he, he will not, you know, shiv his enemy. Uh, you know, he just won't. And, uh, and that, you know, that's part of what makes him adorable. But there's times it's in American politics that, you know, you have to get dirty. And he, he's not willing to do that. Now, speaking of adorable, you're an artist, a cartoonist, and an author. How do you do Bernie Sanders? What do you focus on? Because, you know, I would say as a cartoonist, you, you're, a, a, you know, someone who focuses, I will say simplistic, but that, how would you define, that, that sounds a little insulting, and I, I don't mean that way. I just mean that you have a very simple style artistically. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's absolutely too, uh, true. I don't have a fussy, uh, you know, highly draftsman-like style. It's very, some people compare it to The Simpsons, but, uh, you know, it's, it's yes. basically, it's, it's, very, it's very simple and straightforward. I grew up reading, uh, I was really influenced by Charles Schultz and Peanuts. Uh, I like how simple those lines are, and, uh, you know, and so that's, that's where I come from. So, but what do I, with Bernie, um, I think he has a few distinguishing features, uh, but the main one is his flyaway hair. And that's, I tend to sort of make him a lot of rounded features. Uh, he, he, and, you know, his, his chin's round, his nose is round, his face is round generally, but the flyaway hair and the glasses, tell, you know, you could just have those two things and not even show anything else. And people would know who that was. And I'm just curious, were you influenced by Mad Magazine at all? Uh, in terms of attitude, yeah, attitudinally. And, um, you know, I ended up, I had the privilege to, to draw for Mad Magazine in its last iteration uh, before it finally really? closed. Um, yeah, I, I drew for them for uh, probably about 15 years. Um, I, I did two comic strips for them. Uh, and, but like, and I got to meet some of the, you know, the old guys, which were kind of amazing. Um, and yeah, I was like, definitely not in terms of the style, but I definitely, uh, you know, in terms of the, the snarkiness, the, the attitude, the, you know, I don't, I don't give a whatever, uh, that, that part. Yeah, of course. I mean, like an entire generation, I was influenced by that. So I actually met William F. Gaines when I was younger, my mom took me to the offices of Mad Magazine because I was a big fan. And I met William Gaines in his office with King Kong out the window. And I met Sergio Argonis, the uh, artist behind Spy vs. Spy. What old guys did you meet? Jaffe? Don Martin, maybe? I met Jaffe. Um, and, you know, I was amazed at 
you know, the foldovers, you know, the, the back cover foldover art, um, I saw the, him drop one of those things off. Two, he, two things that blew me away. One, yes. painted. they were painted on a canvas. He painted them um, wow. with oils and acrylics. And second, and then the other thing is they were huge. They were like probably three feet high. But here's the part that's really freaky. He didn't work out. He didn't do a draft for those foldover things. He saw it all in his head, and he just did it. And, like, including with, like, the, you know, the wordplay and, like, how there's the, in, the middle part that works out into something different when you fold it over. I was like, right. Like what is what is up with your brain, dude? <laughs> it was it just completely freaked me out. I was like, this guy's a mad genius for sure. That's amazing. I didn't know that. That's very interesting, actually. So, uh, who was your favorite person in the past few years to draw? Who do you like drawing? Ooh, that's such a good question. Um, I would say, you know, I mean, Trump got to be fun. What's really funny is I didn't really understand the mysteries of his hair until I read some speculation about how he'd gotten plugs and the exact nature of how his hair had gotten pulled down and around. And then, then he became kind of fun to draw. But, I mean, the problem is a lot of the fun was taken out of it by the fact that everybody else loves to draw Trump, too. So it was, it's probably like the Nixon cartoonist generation. I mean, everybody's having such a good time. It's not really your good time. So um, I really, there's something about the way, I love drawing Kamala. I mean, I don't, I suspect I will not have to draw her much longer, but she has this like, you know, kind of like, like this really like sort of droll, like mean expression in her eyes that I just can't get enough of. And the fact that she's an attractive woman also means that it's more of a challenge to draw her in the same way that it was hard to draw like Jerry Ford or, or, uh, you know, Obama, you know, good looking people are harder to draw. Um, so yeah, I, you know, uh, for the country, I want Kamala to like never serve in elected office again, but as a cartoonist, I wouldn't mind. Now, Ted, uh, you're in New York and I've heard have you seen any of the radiation warnings or the nuclear bomb warnings? I've heard they've got posters and they're running commercials. Have you seen any of them? I did see a uh, electronic billboard, you know, one of the ones that changes from one thing to the other. And I wasn't able to get a photo of it before it changed to something else. But I saw one. It might have been of a bus stop. So are you prepared for radiation sickness, Ted? I am uh, psychologically, perhaps, um, obviously, physically, there is nothing one can, you know, real reasonably do if such a thing happens. Although I do know you're supposed to sort of do the Karen Silkwood thing and, and, and like take a, take a shower and scrub yourself down. But you really are supposed to do that. No, I often feel that way when I see Joe Biden talk. So... Uh, it's a coincidence, but have you ever in your life seen New York issue warnings about a nuclear war, or is that new in your experience? No, that's never happened before. 
the only presence that there's ever been is those, uh, the city is, has a lot of uh, obsolete signs from the early 60s on, on apartment buildings. You know, none of them actually have fallout shelters. I mean, presumably back in the day, what it meant was you were supposed to go to the basement of a building, but everybody's basement just has like a laundry room and a, maybe a bike storage closet, which is not going to keep you very safe unless you decide to bike away from the nuclear explosion. Um, the, I did one of my very first articles that I ever wrote for my campus paper. I went to college in New York, um, was uh, about Columbia's fallout shelters, uh, which were quite extensive under the university. There's a system of steam tunnels that connects most of the buildings there. And they had water, old water biscuits and uh, uh, water barrels and toilet cups. You're supposed to use the drink the water and then uh, put a toilet seat on top of the water barrel and eat the water biscuits. And there was all sorts of, you know, uh, Cold War ephemera down there, um, you know, that had been that you could just look look at or steal if you were so inclined. Not that I ever did. Uh, there were Geiger counters. Um, uh, it was a pretty bleak. It was a pretty bleak place. So, as usual, Ted, thank you for a fascinating discussion. We learned about Al Jaffe's Holdings and Columbia's fall shelters. And I think that's why this is the Ted Rawl Radio Network. But I, I am going to head to the site R-A-L-L after this next payday and get my caricature done. What do you need from people? Just a picture? Yeah, just a, just a, yeah, just a good, clear photo of uh, maybe the, you know, your chest and headshot would be good. Okay. So thanks so much, Ted Rawl. And a great appearance as usual, learning about fall shelters, fold-ins, and France. And that's a lot of F. So I'll leave it right there. Thanks so much to Reese Everson for a great appearance at the first hour. And we'll be back tomorrow with Rod and maybe Carter Laren on The Backstory. Backstory.